Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to try and make sense of a very interesting set of election results in England, in Wales, and in Scotland. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. It's a pleasure to welcome back the historian Colin Kidd. And Helen and I spoke with Colin in the first episode of our series about the Union. And we were talking then about the history of the Anglo-Scottish Union over centuries. Colin, we're going to bring the story bang up to date and talk a little bit about the future too. As we said we would, I think when we discussed it, we hoped we could get you back after the Holyrood election. So we'll, we'll start with Scotland and then we'll move to the rest of the UK a bit later. What's your sense coming out of these elections? It's sort of a cliche, I think, to say that the forces of pro-independence and pro-union look as evenly divided as ever. Slightly more votes, maybe, for the union side, more seats in the sense of the SNP plus the Greens for the at least pro-second referendum side. But Gordon Brown is trying to argue, he's arguing it today, that we should really think about Scotland as a 30-30-40 nation, 30 on each side dug in, but 40% of people in the middle, what he calls middle Scotland, who are both pro-devolution and pro-union. Do you think that's a better way of seeing it? Yes, I do. I mean, it looks as though Scotland's pretty evenly divided in terms of pro and anti-union forces. But what the election results don't quite measure is the depth or shallowness of commitment either to independence or to the union. So I think Gordon's calculation is more in line with my own view of the situation. The SNP are wonderful at doing politics and at positioning themselves. And here they did a marvellous job positioning themselves as incumbents yet also anti-Westminster insurgents as a social democratic party, and I'll say more about the manifesto later, as well as being a pro-independence referendum party. But it's an odd situation because basically, I don't think the electorate has changed from the old days when we had a dominant Scottish Labour Party. But what we have now are, in effect, two Scottish Labour parties, the Labour Party proper, but also Nicola Sturgeon's makeover of the SNP as effectively Scottish Labour Mark II. Yeah, I was just going to ask, Colin, what you think about the idea that there was very obviously at least two different elections going on in Scotland, one in which actually the Conservative Party were the ones who were doing most of the running, which was to turn it into an election about whether there would be another referendum on independence and a more skillful one that the SNP were running, which was simultaneously to make it about an independence referendum for those of its supporters who are in that 30% that you're describing, but simultaneously saying that it's actually also about us as the most competent party in this devolved structure, the one that are most capable of standing up to Westminster. So that moment when Nicola Sturgeon answers the voter who says, what do I do if I want you to be... First Minister for dealing with the, or Head of Government for dealing with the pandemic, but I don't want a referendum. And she says, well, you vote for the SNP. 
that kind of captures it. And the ability of the SNP at the moment to go both ways is to their advantage. Yes, I mean, that's certainly the case. And I say it was a very bizarre SNP manifesto. There was an, an awful lot of mention of social welfare provision, Think things like free NHS dental care, a pilot scheme to pioneer a four-day week, uh, moves towards some guaranteed basic income, additional money for the NHS. And what puzzled me was that this was not a manifesto of a party that was girding its fiscal loins to move to independence within the lifetime of the parliament. It looked very much like more of the same social democratic model. And Nicola Sturgeon has become, I mean, she's incredibly cautious, especially in recent years. And I think her her biggest problem is how she manages to manage the expectations of, of those in her party who want independence very soon. Arguably, in fact, although he was the big loser of the referendum, Alex Salmon with his ALBA party, Alex Salmon's party put forward a much more coherent set of policies for an independent Scotland and its relations with Europe than the SNP managed. So if, as you both say, the SNP is facing two ways, and we talked about this when we discussed the history of the union and also the history of the SNP. And back then, I suppose we were, it was sort of in the early days of the sturgeon salmon rift, which seems to have gone Sturgeon's way. And there was a question then about whether it would divide the party. But there's always a question with the SNP. You know, it's the dog that never quite seems to bark. When will the divisions inside the party come to the surface? But presumably in the course of this parliament, as we move towards the question of a, a referendum and, and how Westminster resistance to that is dealt with, these divisions can't stay buried forever. I mean, something's got to give, doesn't it? Well, I think what the electorate's repudiation of Alex Salmond does, and the fact that Alex Salmond's Alba party siphoned off fundamentalist members from the SNP, is I think it gave Nicola Sturgeon a renewed mandate to run things her own way. In other words, advance gradually towards greater autonomy, but without the absolutely massive upheaval that independence would bring in the wake of Brexit. Yeah, I think, David, the implication of what has happened is that Sturgeon has absolutely won the short-term battle, perhaps more spectacularly than she might have imagined. But unless Alex Salmon is going to go away, and he's going to be a pretty trenchant critic of what Sturgeon is doing, because clearly still a significant part of the 30% who want independence in Collins 30-30-40 have voted for the SNP in the belief that Sturgeon is going to push them towards it. But I think two things are clear, and I think Collins already said this. The first is that Sturgeon herself doesn't particularly look committed. And that, I think, comes out if you look at all the different things that she said since 2016 and the last Scottish parliamentary elections. But also, Salmon's critique from the point of view of the project of independence of what Sturgeon is doing is really stark. They have now taken complete opposite positions. If you take the two big questions, the EU question and the currency question, Sturgeon's position is that we pursue EU membership, but we stay using sterling outside monetary union. And Salmon's position 
which is, as Colin says, more coherent, is that we, we have our own currency absolutely as quickly as possible and we only pursue membership of the European free trade area and not the European Union. And these are radically different positions. One makes a lot more sense, however difficult it still is from the point of view of trying to achieve more independence. The other actually doesn't make any sense whatsoever because you can't actually pursue EU membership without having a currency that you could, in principle at least, put into the exchange rate mechanism. So I want to ask you in a moment about how then the unionist forces, the defenders of the union, might try and exploit these weaknesses or divisions. But there's another sort of new alliance that's been created now in Scottish politics, which is the SNP and the Greens. So the reason that pro-second referendum parties have a majority is because the Greens give the SNP that majority. So I don't know enough about the Scottish Greens or indeed about how SNP-Green relations work to know whether depending on the Greens to get a vote through for a second referendum provides Sturgeon with weakness, strength. Is it cover for her? Can she, I don't know how committed the Greens are to this, can she use that to her advantage if she wants to delay? Colin, do you have a sense of what that does to Scottish politics? Because the Greens are a relatively new force here. Yeah, no, I think the Greens have propped her up. They propped her up in the last parliament and certainly helped her through some of her, her difficulties Strangely enough, they've possibly become more associated with with independence than they have with green issues. I say that as someone who believes that climate change is the biggest issue facing us and who has actually in the past voted for the Greens. But in recent years, they've become very much associated with the independence cause. The problem comes in that it's only a matter of a few years since the SNP was setting out its stolen 2014 referendum for a sort of oil-based independent future. And obviously, oil is now one of the stumbling blocks towards independence, but the green relationship makes it even more tricky because the Greens believe that basically Scotland has to move out of fossil fuels on a wholesale and immediate basis, which isn't quite the SNP's policy for a kind of a more gradually decarbonized future. It's fascinating in a way that the Greens should be more associated now with independence than necessarily with green issues. I don't fully understand what is the green vision for an independent Scotland, therefore? How are the two things married in the absence of oil? Is it Scotland establishing itself and using its independence to forge a new kind of green energy policy. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. And I say the SNP aren't that far away on that, but there is still clear blue water on, as it were, policies towards the North Sea oil and gas sector. And do you think it's inherently unstable, SNP green politics? There is something interesting going on here because Scotland does have a significant green energy capacity around offshore wind. It's actually got really better prospects for decarbonising the electricity sector rapidly than many countries have. So I think there is a way in principle of reconciling the old SNP position with oil and still telling a green story about an independent Scotland's future. The problem is the way in which the oil issue interacts with the fiscal question, interacts with the currency question, interacts with EU membership, and that's where they all come back together again. The thing that the oil back in 2014 in principle gave was significantly more fiscal leeway. And that's been hurt not just because of the 
moved by investors away from the fossil fuel sector, but it's been hurt by the significant fall in the price of oil, which is about a third lower than it was back in 2014. Now, I think there are reasons to think it will be on the way back up again. So even if you could tell a quite positive story from an independence perspective about an energy transition, you've still got to deal with the issue of like where the revenue that was coming from oil back in 2014 is now going to come from in terms of finding an effective solid fiscal basis for Scottish independence. So that then leads to the question which has been much discussed in the past few days about what I'd say a Westminster government, this Westminster government, the Boris Johnson government should do to make the case for the union now in the run up to the showdown over a second referendum. And I'm just going to sort of sketch out three versions of that case Johnson's version, then one that's been laid out recently by William Hague, former Conservative leader, and then the Gordon Brown version. So in his argument about Middle Scotland, he has an argument for what he thinks should be done. And these are all going to be shorthand slash caricatures. But essentially, the Johnson muscular unionism thing is to throw money at it, big projects, infrastructure, show Scottish voters that some of the levelling up largesse of the Westminster government is going to be directed to them and that they can only have that as part of the union sort of flagship projects. The Gordon Brown argument is for Westminster to use what he calls its convening power to bring together not just leaders of devolved governments, but also, as he says, the popular recently elected or re-elected mayors in places like Liverpool, Manchester, the West Midlands, and to create a kind of vision of a collaborative unionist project which takes seriously different levels of power and tries to bring people together for joint action. And then William Hague's argument, which touches more on what we've been discussing, which is to push the SNP much harder on what he calls the four essential weaknesses of the case, each of which is very difficult potentially for the SNP to address. One is the currency question. One is the how are you going to pay for this, these welfare goodies without taxes and then generous spending organised on a UK level, Scotland's benefits through the UK system. So currency, tax and spend, the border and defence. Will Scottish independence and Scottish membership of NATO nonetheless weaken the defence of the UK? So there's two questions here. So you've got those three approaches, Colin, I don't know which one you think is likely to be more effective. And then within William Hague's four-pronged assault, where do you think the SNP's greatest weakness is? I think it's pretty clear that the Johnson strategy won't work. After all, we've just been through a period when the Scottish economy has been propped up by furlough money from Whitehall, but it that message hasn't got through to the voters. So I, I don't think any amount of pumping money into Scotland or in, into big ticket projects in Scotland is going to work. I think it's the Brown strategy that's the best. And I think the most important thing here is that when it comes to a future referendum, that the story not be pitched as one of status quo against change. It has to be a narrative of a choice between one kind of change and another kind of change. I think there has to be movement on the constitution at a UK level, and it also has to be something dramatic that people can understand and appreciate, which is where I think it has to be something that is very very grand that attracts attention. It has to be something like the federalization of the United Kingdom and the transformation of the House of Lords into some kind of possibly like a Bundesrat or some kind of Senate of the the nations and regions of the UK. It has to be a big story. 
On the second point about where the weak points are, I think we can discount defence as a major worry. But I think the three issues of the currency, the tax and the border, they're all interrelated. And go back to what I was saying earlier, that the SNP is brilliant on the politics and the positioning. But I have to say, it just doesn't devote enough time to issues of political economy. And so I think the currency, the tax and border, if one were part of the EU, they're all interrelated and all relate to the impact of independence on the Scottish economy, which I thought back in 2014 would be pretty disastrous. I think it looks even more disastrous now. And there are a lot of shallow nationalists out there who, on the basis of opinion polling, they're told if if you're £500 a year worse off under independence, and so suddenly the numbers shift pretty dramatically. So I think there are big dangers there for the SNP, but I, I wouldn't want to disaggregate currency tax and border. I think they're all interrelated and point to the SNP's lack of thinking under Sturgeon in recent years to the issues of political economy. Yeah, I agree with quite a bit of what Colin said. It is really interesting the way the muscular union strategy that Johnson wants to pursue has shown been shown to be ineffective where the economic aspects of the pandemic are concerned. What that yields is a permanent SNP government in Edinburgh that extracts resources from Westminster and then promises them to Scottish voters. Indeed, you could say that that's a more grandiose way of the way in which Scottish Labour used to play the politics of the union, particularly when Labour was in power in terms of extracting resources out of Westminster, which fits with Colin's earlier thesis that Sturgeon's SNP is a little bit Scottish Labour rewritten using different languages and symbols. I think the difficulty arises with thinking that Brown's proposals are any kind of remedy because everything that Brown says is always premised on this phrase, the nations and the regions. And what regions means is a regionalisation of England. England never constitutes a nation in the way in which Gordon Brown approaches this problem and that runs into the the hard reality that English voters have shown repeatedly that they don't want to be regionalised and that the strength of the Conservative Party comes from those people who identify more as English than as British. I just can't see how there's any way of stabilising the union that doesn't involve English consent in the long term as well as Scottish consent. So anything that goes down the road of federalisation as a remedy for keeping Scotland in the union will have to come up with something that engages England as a political entity and doesn't rely on the regionalisation of England. And Colin, I just want to add in one more note of scepticism about the Brown proposal. When you talk about the need for a, a grand constitutional offer, there is that just question of sequencing in British politics. The British political system is not good at grand constitutional rethinks because it is inherently piecemeal. And if one thinks about the lifetime of this Scottish Parliament and its intersection with the lifetime of the Westminster Parliament, it almost feels as though they're not going to get around to the grand constitutional offer unless there is an imminent and present danger of Scots voting for independence, which would only probably be realised right in the run-up to a referendum, at which point it's too late. I mean, it's a bit like last time. You can get people's attention to do something in the last week before a vote they're terrified of losing. But by that point, all you'll get is some cobbled together something the reform of the House of Lords into a federal second chamber. I can't see how the sequencing is going to work. I think you're right. And when I've spoken to 
leading conservatives who have claimed that the union is first and foremost on their list of priorities. You just don't get any sense of movement on this. But you bring up the issue of sequencing, which I think actually is very important as it relates to a referendum. We saw with Brexit and the referendum there that people voted for a pig in a poke. I think that there is an issue here about the sequencing around a referendum. And personally, I would much rather see Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson enter into some kind of negotiation about what independence might look like and then move to a referendum on a detailed prospectus. Do you think, Helen, can you see a a negotiation there in the sense that it would require Johnson to agree, just as it would have required Cameron to agree, a picture of what a post-Brexit or post-independence settlement looks like, and they're just not going to do it? They're not going to give that picture. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons as well why that might be is that there's, from the point of view of a unionist like Johnson, there's clear advantage in not articulating what all this might mean, because then you can use the incoherence of the independence project as it stands at the moment, certainly Sturgeon's version of it, as a means of winning the referendum. Now, obviously, there's a gamble in that, because that presumes that people are going to respond to those arguments. But at the same time, I think the number of interlocking problems, as Colin has said, that the independence project now faces would mean that it was extremely vulnerable to pretty potent attack once we got into a a referendum moment. And some of the things that would have to be negotiated if the independent side were to win, I think would be quite difficult substantively to do in advance. And some of them Obviously, not least the EU question, which pretty quickly turns into the currency question and the border question, are not matters that can simply be negotiated in advance between Westminster and Edinburgh, as they fundamentally involve Brussels as well. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So one last question on, on Scotland. And again, it's a question about sequencing. So there is a consensus at the moment, a kind of consensus anyway, that the referendum question cannot be pushed for now because everyone is focused on the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. But we are not that far off from being right in the coming out of the pandemic phase. And then the questions are going to move from questions of health to questions of economics, political economy and politics. How long will it wash for everyone to be able to say, well, we can't concentrate on this because we're still dealing with the pandemic? Or do you think that the SNP's political skill, given there probably are reasons for them not to want to push this issue for a while, they can carry on with that line and we're still dealing with the fallout for a year or two or more? Remember here, there's a, there has for quite a long time been a marriage of self-interest between the Tories and the SNP, however much they detest one another. And both Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon look as though they could be in power for a decade or longer if they wanted. 
The only thing that threatens their holding office would be a referendum where the figures are narrowly split at 50-50 and where the momentum at the moment is with the unionist side, but it can't go much further. So I think there's a huge danger to both of them in going for a referendum. And so I think self-interest dictates that we'll have this long period of shadow boxing where neither side really wants to risk going to the polls because it might mean the enforced resignation of either the Prime Minister of the UK or the First Minister of Scotland. So I think there'll be a long period of trench warfare. The problem is, how do we get out of this situation where, in effect, we have long-term SNP government in Scotland, but no resolution to the union question? I can't see a way out of this unless we have some unionist alliance where the constituency seats in the Scottish Parliament become competitive again. And it was it was notable in the election that we've just had that although the Lib Dems did pretty drastically across the country, in three of their seats, they took over 50% of the vote. I don't really see much room for manoeuvre in the long term, except for the dissolution of both the Labour and Conservative parties in Scotland and a gathering of forces under an uncontroversial Scottish Lib Dem banner. And that does seem like a long shot. (laughs) The thing is, is that for the reasons that Colin has said, the present situation, minus the pushing it to a referendum, suits both the Conservatives and the SNP well, because it keeps the Labour Party out of power. And both of them, in part, exist to do, in good part, I should say, exist to do that. I should also say, I mean, the big problem really is how do you woo all the Labour voters who I think were maybe soft or shallow nationalists who moved over to the SNP in the aftermath of the 2014 referendum. There were two different Labour strategies in the run-up to the referendum. One was Alistair Darling's, recognising that there was a shared interest in preserving the union, and so he was involved in Better Together with Conservatives. The other approach was that of Gordon Brown, who maintained distance and ran his own separate Labour campaign against independence. But at some point, the parties are going to have to catch up with the electorate. The Scottish electorate, in its tactical voting, has pointed the way for the parties. The voters have shown that they are prepared to move between parties to hold up the union vote. It's time for the party politicians to follow their voters. Before we go, Helen and I are just going to talk a little bit about the wider set of results, but also some of the fallout from last Thursday's elections, particularly for the Labour Party, but not exclusively. Helen, there have been two interventions by two of the ghosts who haunt British politics, one older than the other. So Dominic Cummings, straight after the results, gave his analysis in which he said, among other things, that what it shows is that there is no middle in politics anymore, certainly not in British politics. The middle ground is an illusion. Tories understand that, Labour doesn't. And Tony Blair, as almost as we speak, has just published a long essay in The New Statesman arguing against the capture of the Labour Party by what he calls the woke left. I'm not sure we want to call it that. But also saying essentially that the Labour Party will die unless it is reconstructed from top to bottom. Reform isn't enough. Deconstruction and reconstruction is what he's calling for. In a way, these two things look like they don't go together, given that Tony Blair is associated with the centre of British politics, and yet probably they do. I think what Cummings is saying is that there is no centre when it comes to questions of value and culture, possibly now. 
Uh, the two parties have moved too far apart and the Labour Party is too far from the, I suppose Cummings would say, the basic instincts of most voters. And yet at the same time, probably the results of the election suggest that if you leave outside the, the cultural identity questions on practical politics, what's sometimes called bread and butter politics, the fact that incumbents did well everywhere, the fact that the Labour Party did well in Wales, Labour mayors were re-elected often with thumping majorities, people like Andy Burnham focusing on the buses, that there is a case for a pragmatic politics if it can get away from the most divisive cultural questions. There clearly was a, a notable incumbency effect, though I think there's a little bit of a caveat that needs perhaps to be put on that in relation to to Scotland, just for the reasons that we've been talking about with Colin. That's quite a complicated election with multiple things going on. And it's also noticeable if we say, look, it's the incumbents that did well. And I'm leaving the mayors aside for a moment. Actually, in England, the Conservatives made gains. You know, they took control of, I think, about 12 more councils. They gained more than 300 councillors, whereas the SNP held its position largely and Welsh Labour held its position. So I think the incumbency argument can be overdone. At the same time, though, it's clear, and the mayor story then comes in here, I think that with political power in the economic age in which we live, in which the state and then devolved institutions are more interventionist than they have been, that this gives advantages to incumbent parties at the the top level. It means that there's money to spend. And that does make for a, a rather different kind of politics than had previously existed. And I think that if we get too caught up in the idea that it's culture that's becoming the determinant element of the realignment, we're missing the fact that something economically has really shifted because we no longer have governments, and it's obviously not just true in Britain, who are anywhere near as much worried as they were about increasing amounts of debt. So what then is the lesson for the Labour Party? Tony Blair's trying to, he's been trying for a while to draw a lesson and there is criticism for Keir Starmer from all sides and I think this is not one of those cases where if they're attacking you from both sides you must be doing something right. His position looks pretty weak. But what is the long-term lesson to be drawn for Labour here? The basic challenge of electoral politics is to assemble a coalition that allows you to win elections. I can't see any more clearly than I could a week ago how Labour does that. Andy Burnham, who I think in many ways, I think there is a case for saying that, though I don't think he's yet standing for the leadership, but were Andy Burnham leader of the Labour Party, it's unlikely that the people who are voting Labour in places like Cambridge and in the South and in the university towns would be turned off by Andy Burnham particularly. And yet at the same time, a Northern politician with a record now of governing in a sense, in the North, must be better able to appeal to the voters that the Labour Party have lost than Starmer seems able to do. But that doesn't seem like enough. I can't, you know, if if the solution to Labour's problem is Andy Burnham, then I think we're misrepresenting the problem. I don't think it's Tony Blair either, though the new statesman is wanting to say that this is the beginning of a comeback. How should Labour think about the basic challenge of reassembling a winning coalition? Because Scotland, for now anyway, for all the reasons that we've just discussed, doesn't look like part of it, though Wales clearly is part of it. Yeah, I think that if you look at it as the problem of forming a coalition, we haven't learned anything particularly new in this election and that the basic problem that Labour faces and that it's become concentrated on England is 
its old class coalition no longer fits together and some would say that it doesn't even make sense to think about class politics in the same terms and I would suggest that into that has come the whole problem of the union and that that causes Labour considerable problems in England as well as in Scotland. I think that Andy Burnham can look like an alternative because he appears to have somewhat more energy, political energy than Starmer. And obviously he made a bid last late summer, early autumn to kind of be that almost the voice of the North, the king of the North to use the Game of Thrones analogy. But if you look at the political situation in, in Greater Manchester, he hasn't done anything transformative there because this has been a you know a very strong Labour area. He's not done something like Ben Hutchin has done with the Teesside mayoralty. And it is true that there is one part of that Greater Manchester area that was one of the so-called Red Wall constituencies that fell, which was Lee, that fell in December 2019. And I looked at the election results there and the council level, then Labour held on to its three councillors. But I think that given that Andy Burnham is from himself from Lee, then sort of still reading off that, that he's got some capacity, necessarily got some capacity with those Labour voters who went Conservative in December 2009 might be quite a hard argument to sustain, or at least it can't be generalised, I think, from Lee. I think if we then move to Blair's analysis, you can see he has a, a point that a set of cultural issues, let's call them that cultural politics, causes Labour very considerable difficulty. And it's reasonable to say that since Starmer's taken over, he hasn't been able to change certain aspects of internal Labour Party culture away from those cultural issues. I think the thing, though, that Blair is just utterly fails to see is the relationship between the cultural set of issues and Brexit and the fact that the the people in the in the Labour Party who pushed the hardest for Labour to move to an anti-Brexit position were people like him. Indeed, he was busy off trying to negotiate separately with Macron and other people. So there is a sense in which the voters who, he says it's essential that Labour wins back and he thinks, see the Labour Party in toxic terms because of these cultural issues that he describes as as woke. Actually, don't particularly see a difference, I think, between those set of issues and Labour Party moving towards the party of becoming the second referendum on Brexit. So it's a, I just think that the problem that Labour faces is much more complicated than Blair is willing to acknowledge because he's not willing to engage with the legacy of Brexit and the campaign to try to stop Brexit happening between the 2017 and 2019 general elections. I'm often reminded of a conversation that I had with a Conservative minister quite a while ago, more than five years ago, and she had just been to the northeast on a trip to the northeast, Northumberland and also Tyne and Weir, and she'd come back enthused and she said, it's so wonderful, it's just there are so many Tory voters up there, it's just so wonderful to be among our people and to be among Tory voters. And I looked sceptical and surprised. And I said, are there? And she said, yeah, they just don't know it yet. And I feel in a way that Labour's message still seems to be there are all these people who are voting Conservative. They're Labour voters. They've forgotten it. It's not that they don't know it yet. It's almost like they've forgotten it and we need to remind them of it. And that connects to the thing that many people have pointed this out. The Labour Party seems trapped in this cycle. And I think Blair is part of this. Everybody's saying we have to stop talking to ourselves. 
you know, we have to reach out. We, we have to stop making this sound like an internal argument within the Labour Party. But even the phrase, we have to stop talking to ourselves, is talking to ourselves. And I mean, Burnham probably is doing a better job than others of sounding like he's not talking to himself or he's not the Labour Party talking to itself. But it does feel trapped in that. And as you say, I tend to agree, even Burnham, he's doing a great job of reminding Labour voters that they're Labour voters. But that sense that there are all these Tories out there who don't know yet that they're Labour voters, I don't get that sense at all from anyone in the Labour Party. No, and any idea that people can be who defected from voting Labour can be reminded that they're Labour rather than that the actual act of moving away from voting Labour has had a significant impact on their sense of self also kind of misses something that's happened because for many people, the act of stopping voting Labour and voting Tory would have felt like a family betrayal, internal betrayal. Once you've done that, you don't kind of think, okay, well, I made a mistake when I, or you don't easily think, anyway, I made a mistake when I crossed the line, I'm just going to go back. It's much more, I think, the perception is that Labour left them behind, that they've moved to this different place. Now, they can become completely disillusioned with the Conservatives, but it doesn't necessarily follow from that that the response is, well, we're going to go back to who we were, because the actual act of voting Conservative was something that was a a big, life-changing moment. And that analogy that has been drawn a few times, when it was said by canvassers in Hartlepool that the good thing is that they weren't picking up the anger on the doorstep that they had in the past. So people who had been Labour who now said they were going to vote Conservative or at least were not going to vote Labour. There has been in recent years a real undertow of anger there. And the campaigners were saying you know, in the town, people didn't seem to be angry with Labour anymore. But as it was pointed out, it's a bit like you know, having been in a relationship and then you bump into your ex many years later and, and all the bitterness and hostility is gone and it's just it's a friendly chat. That's not a good sign. That's a sign that everyone knows that it's over. Yeah. So a last thought here, which is, and we've discussed this in the past on Talking Politics quite a lot over the last few years, there's a a global trend for parties of the centre-left. There's a trend in Europe and outside of Europe too, that they've struggled in various ways. That coalition looks vulnerable in lots of mature democracies, in lots of relatively wealthy societies, in lots of highly educated societies. And in other electoral systems, those parties have just been crushed, basically, including in France and the Netherlands and so on. So one positive way of thinking about it for Labour is Labour is kept going by first past the post. There is still no alternative party of government. There is no, there's no coming together under a different heading. There's no coming together of the parties. It is still Labour or nothing for opposing the Conservatives and first past the post system. Something has to give eventually. They, They never keep parties in power forever eventually there will be a change. And for now, it still looks like the only place for that change to come is Labour. But if Labour is like those other parties and therefore relatively moribund, there must be a danger that the the first-past-the-post system blinds people to that reality. And maybe Blair is hinting at this too, that first-past-the-post can give the impression that the only alternative party of government is still alive past the point when it's dead. This is quite a complicated question because you can see the ways in which Labour starts struggling against potentially the Green Party in some of its most urban seats. But it's also quite difficult to see how the Greens would get much beyond those places and that doesn't become enough of a an earthquake, so to speak, to shake up the consequences of the first-past-the-post electoral system. 
But I think as well, this is where the two parts of our conversation join back together again, is the union question, I think, really does complicate this because the very idea that Labour can be the alternative party of government as things constitutionally stand at the moment means that it has to be not only the alternative party of government for the UK, but it has to be the alternative party of government for England. And unless it can engage in a such a complete transformation that it is able to win in the kind of way in which Blair's Labour Party were able to win, it's only going to be in a position where it could govern England with some cooperation with other parties. I think more likely it means that the Conservatives keep on winning for that very reason. So I think that we need to see how the the union question plays out before we're going to quite see how the electoral system copes with a potentially fatally moribund party. If you would like to support Talking Politics and get a version of this podcast without adverts in the middle, it's very easy to do. All you have to do is follow the link to Talking Politics Plus wherever you get this podcast. Coming up on Talking Politics, we're going to be talking to the historian Neil Ferguson about the politics of catastrophe. And we're going to be talking to the historian Linda Colley about the fascinating story of constitutions and war. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. So lots of, as it were, social welfare goodies that effectively have to be paid out of... Colin, sorry, are you touching your microphone in some way or wire connected to the microphone? Because there's a lot of rattle... I'll try and stay away. I, th- I think I was touching the, bo- the, the margarine box. That was Shall I start again? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.